Hello everybody and welcome back to a new episode of the History Sisters. Today is another extra episode. It's the two missing parts of Socrates' apology. And this part is the first and the second part of Socrates' apology. The third one is in our actual episode, so if you want to go check that out, listen to it on whatever streaming advice uh, streaming platform you're listening to. Um, right now, just go on our profile and listen to Socrates and if you like it, maybe just listen to all the others as well because they are pretty cool. Anyhow, um, just a quick heads up, the whole speak is delivered in Greek originally, so it was translated to English. The names still are obviously Greek, so if I mispronounce them, I'm really sorry. I had so such a struggle at one point because there was like name after name. So I was struggling really hard to get them out somehow. So if they're wrong, I'm really, really sorry. Please, please tell me via our Instagram, which is at History Sisters Pod, or our email, which is the History Sisters Pod at gmail.com. How to pronounce them correctly. I would love to hear that. Um, I recorded this speech because it's a very long speech. I recorded it over a few days, so my voice might sound different in different parts. First and second, in the middle of um, the second part, I started um, choking. I don't know what happened, but for that reason, my voice sounds very squeaky in like the second part of the second part. I hope you guys enjoy it. I know it's very long. Stick with me. Yeah, let's get to it. How you have felt, O men of Athens, at hearing the speeches of my accusers, I cannot tell. But I know that their persuasive words almost made me forget who I was. Such was the effect of them, and yet they have hardly spoken a word of truth. But many as their falsehoods were, there was one of them which quite amazed me. I mean, when they told you to be upon your guard and not to let yourselves be deceived by the force of my eloquence, they ought to have been ashamed of saying this, because they were sure to be detected as soon as I opened my lips and displayed my deficiency. They certainly did appear to be most shameless in saying this, unless by the force of eloquence they mean the force of truth. For then I do indeed admit that I am eloquent." but in how different a way from theirs well as i was saying they have hardly uttered a word or not more than a word of truth but you shall hear from me the whole truth not however delivered after their manner in a set oration duly ornamented with words and phrases no indeed but i shall use the words and arguments which occur to me at the moment for i am certain that this is right and that at my time of life i ought not to be appearing before you o man of athenes in the character of a juvenile orator let no one expect this of me and i must beg of you to grant me one favour which is this if you hear me using the same words in my defence which i have been in the habit of using and which most of you may have heard in the agora and at the tables of the money changers or anywhere else i would ask you to not be surprised at this and not to interrupt me, for I am more than seventy years of age, and this is the first time that I have ever appeared in a court of law, and I am quite a stranger to the ways of the place. And therefore I would have you regard me as if I were really a stranger, whom you would excuse if he spoke in his native tongue. And after the fashion of this country, that I think is not an unfair request, never mind the manner, which may or may not be good, but think only of the justice, of my cause, and give heed to that. 
Let the jury decide with the virtue and the speaker speak truly. And first, it's only right that I reply to the older charges and to my first accusers, and then I will go to the later ones. For I have had many accusers who accused me of old, and their false charges have continued during many years. And I am more afraid of them than of Anitus and his associates, who are dangerous too, in their own way. But far more dangerous are these who began when you were children, and took possession of your minds with their falsehoods. Telling of one Socrates, a wise man, who speculated about the sky above, and searched into the earth beneath, and made the worst appear the better cause. These are the accusers whom I dread, for they are the circulators of this rumor, and their hearers are too apt to, to fancy that speculators of this sort do not believe in the gods. And they are many, and their charges against me are of ancient date, and they made them in days when you were impressible, in childhood, or perhaps in youth. And the cause when heard went by default, for there was none to answer. And hardest of all, their names I do not know and cannot tell, unless in the chance of comic poet. But the main body of these slanderers, the property of my answering the latter first. For these accusations you heard long before the others, and much oftener. Who from envy and malice have wrought up on you, and there are some of them who are convinced themselves and impaired and impart their convictions to others, all these, I say, are most difficult to deal with. For I cannot have them up here and examine them, and therefore I must simply fight with shadows in my own defense and examine when there is no one who answers. I will ask you then to assume with me, as I was saying, that my opponents are two kinds, one recent, the other ancient. And I hope that you will see that well then, I will make my defense, and I will endeavor. In the short time which is allowed to do away with this evil opinion of me, which you have held for such a long time, and I hope I may succeed, if this be well for you and me, and that my words may find favor with you. But I know that to accomplish this is not easy. I quite see the nature of the task. Let the event be as the good wills. In obedience to the law, I make my defense." I will begin at the beginning, and ask what the accusation is, which has given rise to the slander of me, and which has encouraged Meletus to proceed against me. What do the slanderers say? They shall be my persecutors, and I will sum up the words in an affidavit. Socrates does nothing that is just. He is a curious person who searches into things under the earth and in the sky, and he makes the worst appear the better cause and he teaches the aforesaid doctrines to others. That is the nature of the accusation, and that is what you have seen yourselves in the comedy of Aristophanes, who has introduced a man whom he calls Socrates, going about and saying that he can walk in the air and talking a deal of nonsense concerning matters of which I do not pretend to know either much or little. Not that I mean to say anything disparaging of anyone who is wise about natural philosophy. I should be very sorry if Miletus could lay that to my charge. But the simple truth is, O Athenians, that I have nothing to do with these studies. Very many of those here present are witnesses to the truth of this, and to them I appeal. Speak then, you who have heard me, and tell your neighbors, and tell your neighbors whether any of you have ever known me hold forth in few words or in many upon matters of this sort. You hear their answer, and from what they say of this, you will be able to judge of the truth of the rest. 
As little foundation is there for the report that I am a teacher and take money, that is no more true than the other. Although if a man is able to teach, I honor him for being paid, who go the round of the cities, and are able to persuade the young men to leave their own cities. There is Gorgias of Leontini, and Prodesius of Sias, and Hippias of Elis, by whom they might be taught for nothing, and come to them whom they not only pay, but are thankful if they may be allowed to pay them there is actually a parian wise man i met a man who has spent a world of money on the sophists callias the son of hipponocus and knowing that he had sons i asked him callias i said if your two sons were foals or calves there would be no difficulty in finding someone to put over them we should hire a train of horses or a farmer probably who would improve and perfect them in their own proper virtue and excellence but as there are human beings, whom are you thinking of placing over them? Is there anyone who understands human and political virtue? You must have thought about this as you have sons. Is there anyone? There is, he said. Who is he? said I. And of what country? And what does he charge? Eventus de Perian, he replied. He is the man, and his charge is five coins. Happy is a Venus, I said to myself, if he truly has this knack and teaches as such a modest charge. Had I the same, I should have been very proud and conceited, but the truth is that I have no knowledge of the kind. Residing in Athens, of whom I have heard, and I came to hear of him in this way. I dare say, Athenians, that someone among you will reply, Why is this, Socrates? And what is the origin of these accusations of you? For there must have been something strange which you have been doing. All this great fame and talk about you would never have arisen if you had been like other men. Tell us, then, why this is, as we should be sorry to judge hastily of you. Now I regard this as a fair challenge, and I will endeavor to explain to you the origin of my name and of this evil fame. Please to attend then. And although some of you may think I'm joking, I declare that I will tell you the entire truth. Men of Athens, this reputation of mine has come of a certain sort of wisdom which I possess. If you ask me what kind of wisdom, I reply such wisdom as is attainable by men, for to that extent I am inclined to believe that I am wise. Whereas the persons of whom I was speaking have a superhuman wisdom, which I may fail to describe because I have it not myself, and he who says that I have speaks falsely and is taking away my character. And here, O man of Athens, I must beg you not to interrupt me, even if I seem to say something extravagant. For the word which I will speak is not mine. I will refer you to a witness who is worthy of credit and will tell you about my wisdom, whether I have any and of what sort, and that witness shall be the god of Delphi. You must have known Cherifon. He was early a friend of mine and also a friend of yours, for he shared in the exile of the people and returned with you. Well, Cherifon, as you know, was very impetuous in all his doings, and went to Delphi and boldly asked the oracle to tell him whether, as I was saying, I must beg you not to interrupt, he asked the oracle to tell him whether there was any one wiser than I, and the Puthian prophetes answered that there was no man wiser. Chirifon is dead himself, but his brother, who is in court, will confirm the truth of this story. Why do I mention this? Because I am going to explain to you why I have such an evil name. 
When I heard the answer, I said to myself, what can the God mean and what is the interpretation of this riddle? For I know that I have no wisdom, small or great. What can he mean when he says that I am the wisest of men? And yet he is a God and cannot lie. That would be against his nature. After long consideration, I at last thought of a method of, of trying the question. I reflected that if I could only find a man more wise than myself, then I might go to the God with a refutation of the oracle in my hand. I should say to him, here is a man who is more wise than I am, but you said that I was the most wisest. Accordingly, I went to one who had the reputation of being wise and observed to him. His name I need not mention. He was a politician whom I selected for examination, and the result was as follows. When I began to talk with him, I could not help thinking that he was not really wise, although he was thought wise by many and more wise still by himself. And I went and tried to explain to him that he thought himself wise but was not really wise. And the consequence was that he hated me and his enmity was shared by several who were present and heard me. So I left him, saying to myself as I went away, well, although I do not suppose that either of us knowing anything really beautiful and good, I am better off than he is, for he knows nothing, nothing and thinks that he knows. I neither know or think that I know. In this latter particular, then, I seem to be slightly more wise than him. Then I went to another, who had still higher philosophical pretensions. And my conclusion was exactly the same. I made another enemy of him, and of many others besides him. After this, I went to one man after another, being not unconscious of the enmity which I provoked, and I lamented and feared this. But, necess but necessity was laid upon me. The word of the God I thought ought to be considered first. And I said to myself, Go, I must to all who appear to know and find out the meaning of the oracle. <coughs> and I swear to you, Athenians, by the dog, I swear. <laughs> and I swear to you, Athenians, by the God, I swear. For I must tell you the truth. The result of my missions was just this. I found that the men most in repute were all but the most foolish, and that some inferior men were really wiser and better. I must perform to you the tale of my wandering, just as if I had been laboring to achieve labors that I endured for this purpose, that the gods, that the oracular warding, that the oracular warding should become impossible to refute. When I left the politicians, I went to the poets, tragic, the firambic, and all sorts. And there I said to myself, you will be detected. Now you will find out that you are more ignorant than they are. Accordingly, accordingly I took them some of the most elaborate passages in their own writings. And asked what was the meaning of them, thinking that they would teach me something. Will you believe me? I am mostly... I am almost ashamed to speak the truth, but still I must say that there is hardly a person present that there is hardly a person present who would not have talked better about their poetry than they did themselves. That showed me in an instant that not by wisdom do poets write poetry, but by a sort of genius and inspiration. They are like diviners or soothsayers who also say many fine things but do not understand the meaning of them. And the poets appear to me to be much in the same case. 
and I further observed that upon the strength of their poetry they believed themselves to be the most wise of men in other things in which they were not wise. So I departed, conceiving myself to be superior to them for the same reason that I was superior to the politicians. At last I went to the artisans, for I was conscious that I knew nothing at all, as I may say, and I was sure that they knew many fine things, and this I was not mistaken, for they did know many things of which I was ignorant. And in this they certainly were more wise than I was. But I observed that even the good artisans fell into the same error as the poets. Because they were good workmen, they thought that they also knew all sorts of high matters. And this defect in them overshadowed their wiseness. Therefore I asked myself... <laughs> their wisdom. Therefore I asked myself on behalf of the oracle whether I would like to be as I was, neither having their knowledge nor their ignorance, or like them in both, and I made answer to myself and the oracle that I was better off as I was. This investigation has led to my having many enemies of the worst and most dangerous kind, and has given occasions also to many calumnies. And I am called wise, for my hearers always imagine that I myself possess the wisdom which I find wanting in others. But the truth is, O man of the things, that the God only is wise. And in this oracle he means to say that the wisdom of man is little or nothing. He is not speaking of Socrates, he is only using my name as an illustration. As if he said, O ma, O men, it is the most wise who, like Socrates, know that his wisdom is in truth worth nothing. And so I go my way, obedient to the God, and make in inquisition into the wisdom of anyone, whether citizen or stranger, who appears to be wise, and if he's not wise, then in vindication of the oracle, I show him that he is not wise. And this occupation quite absorbed me, and I have no time to give either to any public matter of interest or to any concern on my own. But I am in utter poverty by reason of my devotion to the God." There is another thing, young men of the richer classes, who have not much to do, come about me of their own accord. They like to hear the pretenders examined, and they often imitate me, and examine others themselves. There are plenty of persons, as they soon enough discover, who think that they know something, but really know little or nothing. And then those who are examined by them, instead of being angry with them, selves are angry with me. They say that Socrates is something, someone who is most polluted. He corrupts young men, and then, if somebody asks them why, what evil does he practice or teach, they do not know and cannot tell, but in order that they manage not appear to be at a loss, they repeat the ready-made charges, which are used against all philosophers about teaching things up in the clouds and under the earth, and having no gods and making the worse appear the better, cause for they do not like to confess that their pretense of knowledge has been detected which is the truth, and as they are numerous and ambitious and energetic, and are all in battle array, and have persuasive tongues, they have filled your ears with their loud and inveterate calumnies. And this is the reason why my free accusers, Miletus and Anitus and Lyson, have set up on me. Miletus, who has a quarrel with me on behalf of the poets, Anitus on behalf of the craft craftsmen, Lycan on behalf of the rhetoricians, and as I said at the beginning, I cannot expect to get rid of this mass of calumny in all, all in a moment. And this, O man of Athens, is the truth. I have concealed nothing. I have this 
resembled nothing, and yet I know that this plainness of speech makes them hate me. And what is their hatred but a proof that I am speaking the truth? This is the occasion and reason of their slander of me, as you will find out either in this or in any future inquiry. I have said enough in my defense against the first class of my accusers. I turn to the second class, who are headed by Miletus, that good and patriotic man, as he calls himself. And now I will try to defend myself against them. These new accusers must also have their avidifid read. What do they say? Something of this sort. That Socrates commit, commits wrong deeds and corrupts the young man, and he does not believe in the god that, he state, that the state believes in, but believes in other things having to do with diamonds of his own. What is the sort of his of charge? And now let us examine the particular counts. He says that I do no justice, but corrupt the youth. But I say, O man of Athens, that Miletus does no justice. And the evil is that he makes a joke of a serious matter, and is too ready at bringing other men to trial from a pretended zeal and interest about matters in which he really never had the smallest interest. And the truth of this I will endeavor to prove. Come here, Miletus, and let me ask a question of you. You think a great deal about the improvement of Yauth. Yes, I do. Tell the judges, then, who is their improver, for you must know, as you have taken the pains to discover their corrupter, and are citing and accusing me before them. Speak, then, and tell the judges who their improver is. Observe, Miletus, that you are silent and have nothing to say, but is not this rather disgraceful and a very considerable proof of what I was saying, that you have no interest in the matter? Speak up, friend, and tell us who their improver is. The laws. But that, my good sir, is not my meaning. I want to know who the person is, who in the first place knows the laws. The judges, Socrates, who are present in court. What do you mean to say, Miletus? That they are able to instruct and improve Yauth? Certainly they are. What? All of them, or some only and not others? All of them. By the goddess Hera, that is good news. There are plenty of improvers then, and what do you say of the audience? Do they improve them? Yes, they do. And the councillors? Yes, the councillors improve them. But perhaps the members of citizen assembly corrupt them? Or do they improve them? They improve them. Then every Athenian improves and elevates them, all with the exception of myself, and I alone am the corrupter. Is that what you affirm? That is what I strongly affirm. I am very unfortunate if that is true, but suppose I ask you a question. Would you say that this also holds true in the case of horses? Does one man do them harm and all the world good? Is not the exact opposite of this true? One man is able to do them good, or at least not many. The train of horses, that is to say, does them good, and others who have to do with them rather injure them? Is not that true, Miletus, of horses or any other animals? Yes, certainly. Whether you and Anatus say yes or no, that is no matter. Happy indeed would be the condition of Yauth if they had one corrupter only, and all the rest of the world were their improvers. And you, Miletus, have sufficiently shown that you never had a thought about the young. Your carelessness seen you not in your not caring about matters spoken of in this very indictment. And now, Miletus, I must ask you another question. Which is better, to live among bad citizens or among good ones? Answer, friend, I say, for that is a question which may be easily answered. Do not the good do their neighbors good, and do the bad do them evil? Certainly. 
And is there anyone who would rather be injured than benefited by those who live with him? Answer, my good friend. The law requires you to answer. Does anyone like to be injured? Certainly not. And when you accuse me of corrupting and deteriorating the youth, do you allege that I corrupt them intentionally or unintentionally? Intentionally, I say. But you have just admitted that the good do their neighbors good and the evil do them evil. Now is that a truth which your superior wisdom has recognized thus early in life? And am I at my age in such darkness and ignorance as not know that if a man with whom I have to live is corrupted by me, I'm very likely to be harmed by him? And yet I corrupt him, and intentionally too. That is what you are saying, and of that you will never persuade me or any other human being. But either I do not corrupt them, or I corrupt them unintentionally, so that on either view of the case of you lie. If my offense is unintentional, the law has no cognizance of unintentional offenses. You ought to have taken me privately and warned in a that I teach them not to acknowledge the gods which the state acknowledges, but some other new divinities or spiritual agencies in their stead. These are the lessons which corrupt the youth, as you say. Yes, that I say emphatically. Then by the gods, Miletus, of whom we are speaking, tell me and the Kurt in somewhat plainer terms what you mean. For I do not as yet understand whether you affirm that I teach others to acknowledge some gods and therefore do believe in gods and am not an entire atheist, this you do not lay to my charge, but only that they are not the same gods with the, which the city recognizes. The charge is that they are different gods. Or do you mean that I am an atheist simply and a teacher of atheism? I mean the latter, that you are a complete atheist. That is an extraordinary statement, Miletus. Why do you say that? Do you mean that I do not believe in the divinity of the sun or moon, which is the common creed of all men? I assure you, judges, that he does not believe in them, for he says that the sun is stone and the moon earth. Friend Miletus, you think that you are accusing Anaxagoras, and you have but a bad opinion of the judges, if you fancy them ignorant, such a degree as not to know that those doctrines are found in the books of Anaxagoras and Clasomenae, who is full of them. And these are the doctrines which the youth are set to learn of Socrates when there are not infrequently exhibitions of them at the theatre. And they might cheaply purchase them and laugh at Socrates if he pretends to father <clears throat> such eccentricities. And so, Miletus, you really think that I do not believe in any good? I swear by Soys that you believe absolutely in none at all. You are a liar, Miletus, not believed even by yourself. For I cannot help thinking, O man of the Athenes, that Miletus is full of insolence and impudent, and that he has written this indictment in a spirit of mere wantonness and a youthful bravado. Has he not compounded a riddle, thinking to try me? He said to himself, I shall see whether this wise Socrates will discover my ingenious contradiction, or whether I shall be able to deceive him and the rest of them. For he certainly does appear to me to contradict himself and the indictment as much as if he said that Socrates is guilty of not believing in the gods, and yet of believing in them, but this is surely an exercise in playfulness. I should like you, men of Athens, to join me in examining what I conceive to be his inconsistency, and do you, Melotus, answer. And I must remind you that you are not interrupt me if I speak in my accustomed manner. Did I ever mean, Melotus, believe in the existence of human things and not human beings? I wish men of Athens that he would answer and not be always trying to get up an interruption. 
Did ever any man believe in horsemanship and not in horses, or in reed playing but not in reed players? No, my friend. I will answer to you and to the Kurt as you refuse to answer for yourself. There is no man who ever did. But now please answer the next question. Can a man believe in things having to do with daimones and not in the daimones themselves? He cannot. I am glad that I have extracted that answer by the assistance of the court. Nevertheless, you swear in the indictment that I teach and believe in things related to the daimones, things new or old no matter at any rate. I believe in things related to daimones, as you say, and swear in the affidavit. But if I believe in things related to daimones, I must believe in daimones or gods themselves. Isn't that true? Yes, that is true, for I may assume that your silence gives assent to that. Now what are daimones? Don't we think that they are either gods or the children of gods? Yes, that is true. But this is just the ingenuous riddle of which I was speaking. The daimones are gods, and you say first that I do not believe in gods, and then again that I believe in gods, that is if I believe in daimones. For if the daimones are the legitimate children of gods, whether by the nymphs or by any other mothers, as is thought that, as all men will allow, necessarily implies the existence of their parents, you might as well affirm the existence of mules and deny that of horses and asses. Such nonsense, Miletus, could only have been devised by you as a way to charge me. We have put this into the indictment because you had nothing real of which to accuse me. But no one who has a particle of understanding will ever be convinced by you that the same man can believe in things having to do with daimonas and gods, and yet not believe that there are daimonas themselves and gods and heroes. I have said enough in the answer to the charge of Milotus. Any elaborate defense is unnecessary. But I, as I was saying before, I certainly have many enemies, and this is what will be my destruction if I am destroyed. Of that I am certain, not Milotus, nor yet Anitus, but the envy and detraction of the world, which has been the death of many good men, will probably be the death of many more. There is no danger of my being the last of them. Perhaps someone might say, are you not ashamed, Socrates, of pursuing such a goal in life which is likely to cause you to die right now? To him I would reply, and I would be replying justly, you, my good men, are not saying it well if you think it is necessary for a man to calculate the risk of living or dying. There is little use in doing that. Rather, he should only consider whether in doing anything he is doing things that are just or unjust acting the part of a good man or a bad one. Worthless men, according to your view, would be the demigods, who fulfilled their lives by doing a Troy, especially the son of Tethys, who so despised the danger of risks, preferring it to wait for disgrace. His mother, goddess that she was, had said to him, when he was showing his eagerness to slay Hector, something like this, I think. My child, if you avenge the slaying of your comrade, Patroclus, and kill Hector, you will die yourself. Right away your fate, she says, is ready for you after Hector. And he, hearing this, utterly despised danger and death. And instead of fearing them, feared rather to live like a worthless man and not to avenge his friend, right away may I die next, he says, and impose justice on the one who committed injustice, rather than stay behind here by the curved ships, a laughing stock and a heavy load for earth to bear. Do you think that he had any thought of death and danger? For wherever a man's place is, whether the place which he has chosen or that in which he has been placed by a commander, there he ought to remain in the hour of danger. 
he should not think of death or anything but of disgrace, and this, O man of Athens, is a true saying. Strange indeed would be my conduct, of, O man of Athens, if I, who, when I was ordered by the generals whom you choose to command me at Potidae and Amphipolis and Delium, remained where they placed me. Like any other man facing death, if, I say, now when, as I conceive and imagine, the god the God orders me to fulfill the philosopher's mission of searching into myself and other men. I were to desert my post through fear of death or any other fear. That would indeed be strange, and I might justly be arraigned in court for denying the existence of the gods, if I disobeyed the oracle because I was afraid of death. Then I should be fancying that I was wise when I was not wise. For this fear of death is indeed the practice pretense of wisdom and not real wisdom being the parents of knowing the unknown since no one knows whether death which they in their fear apprehend to be the greatest evil may not be the greatest good is there not here conceit of knowledge which is a disgraceful sort of ignorance and this is the point in which as i think i am superior to men in general and in which i might perhaps fancy myself more wise than other men that whereas i know but little of the world below I do not suppose that I know, but I do know that injustice and disobedience to a better, whether a good or man, whether God or man, is evil and dishonorable, and I will never fear or avoid a possible good rather than a certain evil. And therefore, if you let me go now and reject the counsels of Anatus, who said that if I were not put to death, I ought not to have been persecuted, and that if I and that if I escape now, and that if I escape now, your sons will all be utterly ruined by listening to my words. If you say to me, Socrates, this time we will not mind Anatus and will let you off, but upon one condition that are to inquire and speculate in this way any more, and if and that if you are caught doing this again, you shall die. If this was the condition on which you let me go, I should reply, Men of the Thanes, I honor and love you, but I shall obey the God rather than you. And while I have life and strength, I shall never keys from the practice and teaching of philosophy, exhorting anyone whom I meet after my manner and convincing him, saying, O oh, my friend, why do you, who are a citizen of the great and mighty and wise city of Athens, care so much about laying up the greatest amount of money and honor and reputation and so little about wisdom and truth? and the greatest improvement of the soul which you never regard or heed at all are you not ashamed of this and if the person with whom i am arguing says yes but i do care i do not depart or let him go at once i interrogate and examine and cross-examine him and if i think that he has no virtue but only says that he has i reapproach him with undervaluing the greater and overvaluing the less and this I should say to everyone whom I meet, young and old, citizen and alien, but especially to the citizens, inasmuch as they are my brethren. For this is the command of the God, as I would have you know, and I believe that to this day no greater good has ever happened in the state than my service to the God. For I do nothing but go about persuading you all, old and young alike, not to take thought for your persons and your properties, but first and chiefly to care about the greatest improvement of the soul. I tell you that virtue is not given by money, but that from virtue come money and every other good of men, public as well as private. This is my teaching, and if this is the doctrine which corrupts the youth, my influence is ruinous indeed.
But if anyone says that this is not my teaching, he is speaking an untruth. Wherefore, O man of Athens, I say to you, do as Anitas bids or not as Anitas bids, and either acquit me or not. But whatever you do, know that I shall never alter my ways, not even if I have to die many times. Men of Athens, do not interrupt, but hear me. There was an agreement between us that you should hear me out, and I think that what I'm going to say will do you good. For I have something more to say at which you may be inclined to cry out, but I beg that you will not do this. I would have you know that if you kill such a one as I am, you will injure yourselves more than you will injure me. Melitus and Anitus will not injure me. They cannot, for it is not in the nature of things that a bad man should injure a better than himself. I do not den deny that he may perhaps kill him or drive him into exile or deprive him of civil rights. And he may imagine, and others may imagine, that he is doing him a great injury. But in that I do not agree with him. For the evil of doing as Anitas is doing, of unjustly taking away another man's life, is greater far. And now, Athenians, I am not going to argue for my own sake, as you might think, but for yours, that you may not sin against the god, or lightly reject his boon by condemning me. For if you kill me, will not easily find another like me, who, if I may use such a ludicrous figure of speech, am a sort of gadfly, given to the state by the god, and the state is like a great and noble steed, who is tardy in his motions, owing to his very size and requires to be stirred into life. I am that gadfly which the god has given the state, and all day long and in all places am always fastening fastening up on you, arousing and persuading and reapproaching you. And as you will not easily find another like me, I would advise you to spare me. I dare say that you may feel irritated at being suddenly awakened when you are caught napping, and you might think that if you were to strike me dead, as Anita's advises, which you easily might, then you would sleep on for the remainder of your lives, unless the god in his care of you gives you another gadfly. And that I am given to you by the God is proven by this, that if I had been like other men, I should not have neglected all my own concerns or patiently seen the neglect of them during all these years and have been doing yours coming to you individually like a father or elder brother, exhorting you to regard virtue. This, I say, would not be like human nature. And had I gained anything of my exhortations had been paid, there would have been some sense in that. But now, as you will perceive, not even the impudence of my accusers dare to say that I have ever exacted or sought pay of anyone. They have no witness of that, and I have a witness of the truth, or what I say, my poverty is sufficient witness. Some may wonder why I go about in private, giving advice and busying myself with the concerns of others, but do not venture to come forward in public and advise the state. I will tell you the reason for this. You have often heard me speak of something related to the gods and to the daimonas, a voice which comes to me and is the thing that Miletus ridicules in the indictment. This thing I have had ever since I was a child. It is a voice which comes to me and always forbids me to do something which I am going to do, but never commands me to do anything, and this is what stands in the way of being engaged in matters of the state. And rightly, as I think, for I am certain, O man of Athens, that if I had engaged in these matters, I would have perished long ago and done no good either to you or to myself. 
And do not be offended at my telling you the truth. For the truth is that no man who goes to war with you or any other multitude, honestly struggling against commission or unrighteousness and wrong in the state, will save his life. He who will really fight for the right, he, if he would be safe, even for a little while, must have a private life and not a public one. I can give you as proofs of this, not words only, but deeds which you value more than words. Let me tell you a passage of my own life, which will prove to you that I should never have yielded to injustice from any fear of death, that, I have, that if I had not yielded, I should have died at once. I will tell you a story, tasteless, perhaps, and commonplace, but nevertheless true. The only office of state which I ever had, O men of Athens, was that of counselor. The tribe Antiochus, which is my tribe, had the presidency at trial of the generals who had not taken up the bodies of the slain after the battle of Arginusae. And you proposed to try them all together, which was illegal, as you all thought afterwards. But at the time I was the only one of Praetanese who was opposed to the illeg Ill illegality. And I gave my vote against you. And when the orators threatened to impeach and arrest me and have me taken away, and you called and shouted, I made up my mind that I would run the risk having law and justice with me rather than take part in your injustice because I feared imprisonment or in death. This happened in the days of the democracy. But when the oligarchy of the Thirty was in power, they sent for me and four others in the rotunda and bade us bring Leon of Salamis as they wanted to execute him. This was a spexy man, of the sort of commands which they were always giving with the view of implicating as many possible in their crimes. And then I showed, not in words, but in deed, that if I may be allowed to use such an expression, I cared not a straw for death, and that my only fear was the fear of doing an unrighteous or unholy thing. For the strong arm of that oppressive power did not frighten me into doing wrong. And when we came out of the rotunda, the other four went to Salamis and fetched Leon. But I went quietly home, for which I might have lost my life, had not the power of the thirty shortly afterwards come to an end. And to this many will witness. Now do you really imagine that I could have survived all these years if I had led a public life, supposing that like a good man I have always supported the right and had made justice, as I ought the first thing? No, indeed, men of the Athenes, neither I nor any other. But I have been always the same in all my actions, public as well as private. And never have I yielded any base compliance to those who are slanderously termed my disciples or to any other. For the truth is that I have no regular disciples, but if anyone likes to come and hear me while I am pursuing my mission, whether he be young or old, he may freely come. Nor do I converse with those who pay only, and not with those who do not pay. But anyone, whether he be rich or poor, may ask and answer me and listen to my words. And whether he turns out to be a bad man or a good one, that cannot be my responsibility, as I never taught him anything. And if anyone says that he has ever learned or heard anything from me in private, which all these the world has not heard, I should like you to know that he is speaking an untruth. But I shall be asked, why do people delight in continually conserving with you? I have told you already, Athenians, the whole truth about this. They like to hear the cross-examination of the pretenders to wisdom. There is amusement in this. And this is a duty which the God has imposed upon me. 
as I am assured by oracles, visions, and in every sort of way in which the will of divine power was ever signified to anyone. This is true, O Athenians, or if not true, would be soon refuted. For if I am really corrupting the youth, and have corrupted some of them already, those of them who have grown up and have become sensible that I gave them bad advice in the days of their youth, should come forward as accusers and take their revenge. And if they do not like to come themselves, some of their relatives, fathers, brothers, or other kinsmen, should say what evil their families suffered at my hands. Now is their time. Many of them I see in court. There's Cretu, who's of the same age and of the same deem with myself. And then there's Critobolus, his son, his son, whom I also see. Then again, there's Lysanias of Svetos, who's the father of Aeschines. He is present. And also there is Antiphon of Cephisus, who is the father of Epigenes. And there are the brothers of several who have associated with me. There is Nicostratus, the son of Theodotides and the brother of Theodotus. Now Theodotus himself is dead, and therefore he at any rate will not seek to stop him. And there is Paralos, the son of Demodocus, who had a brother Theagus, and Ademantus, the son of Ariston, whose brother Plato is present, and Iantodorus, who is the brother of Apollodorus, whom I also see. I might mention a great many others, any of whom Miletus should have produced as witnesses in the course of his speech, and let him still produce them. If he has forgotten, I will make way for him, and let him say if he has any testimony of sort that he can produce. Nay, Athenians, the very opposite is the truth, for all these are ready to witness on behalf of the corrupter, of the destroyer, of their kindred, as Melitus and Anitus call me. Not the corrupted youth only, there might have been a motive for that, but their uncorrupted elder relatives. Why should they too support me with their testimony? Why, indeed, except for the sake of truth and justice, and because they know that I'm speaking the truth and that Miletus is lying? Well, Athenians, this and the like of this is nearly all the defense that I have to offer. Yet a word more. Perhaps there may be someone who's offended at me. When he calls to mind how he himself, on a similar or even a less serious occasion, had recourse to prayers and supplications with many tears, and how he produced his children in court, which was a moving spectacle, together with the posse of his relations and friends, whereas I, who am probably in danger of my life, will do none of these things. Perhaps this may come into his mind, and he may be set against me, and vote in anger, because he is displeased at this. Now if there be such a person among you, which I am far from affirming, I may fairly reply to him, My friend, I am a man, and like other men, creature of flesh and blood, and not of wood or stone, as Homer says, and I have a family, yes, and sons. O Athenians, three in number, one of whom is growing up, and the other two are still young. And yet I will not bring any of them hither in order to petition for you for an acquittal. And why not? not from any self-will or disregard of you, whether I am or am not afraid of death is another question, of which I will not now speak, but my reason simply is that I feel such conduct to be discreditable for myself, and you and the whole state. One who has reached my years, and who has a name for wisdom, whether deserved or not, ought not to debase himself. At any rate, the world has decided that Socrates is in some way superior to other men. 
And if those among you who are said to be superior in wisdom and courage and any other virtue demean themselves in this way, how shameful is their conduct. I have seen men of reputation when they have been condemned, behaving in the strangest manner. They seemed to fancy that they were going to suffer something dreadful if they died, and that they could be immortal if you only allowed them to live. And I think that they were dishonored to the state, and that any stranger coming in would say of them that the most eminent men of Athens, to whom the Athenians themselves give honor and command, are no better than women. And I say that these things ought not to be done by those of us who are of reputation. And if they are done, you ought not to permit them. You ought rather to show that you are more inclined to condemn. Not the man who is quiet, but the man who gets up a doleful scene and makes the city ridiculous. But setting aside the question of dishonor, there seems to be something wrong in petitioning a judge, and thus procuring an acquittal instead of informing and convincing him. For his duty is not to make a present of justice, but to give judgment, and he has sworn that he will judge according to the laws, and not according to his own good pleasure. And neither he nor we should get into the habit of perjuring ourselves. There can be no piety in that. Do not then require me to do what I consider dishonorable and impious and wrong, especially now when I'm being tried for impiety on the indictment of Miletus. For if, O men of Athenes, might by force or persuasion and entreaty, I could overpower your oath, then I should be teaching you to believe that there are no gods, and convict myself in my own defense of not believing in them. But that is not the case, for I do believe that there are gods, and in a far higher sense than that in which any of my accusers believe in them. And to you and to the God I commit my cause, to be determined by you as is best for you and me. Socrates' Proposal for His Sentence There are many reasons why I am not grieved, O men of Athens, as the vote of condemnation. I expected it, and am only surprised that the votes are so nearly equal, for I had thought that the majority against me would have been far larger but now had thirty votes gone over the other side. I should have been acquitted. And I may say that I have escaped Miletus, and I may say more, for without the assistance of Aeneas and Lyson, he would have not had a fifth part of the votes, as the law requires, in which case he would have incurred a fine of a thousand drushmen, as is evident. And so he proposes death as the penalty. And what shall I propose on my part, O men of Athens? Clearly that which is my due. And what is that which I ought to pay or endure? What shall be done to the man who has never had the wit to be idle during his whole life, but has been careless of what the many care about, wealth and family interests and military offices, and speaking in the assembly and magistracies and plots and parties, reflecting that I was really too honest a man to follow in this way and be saved. I did not go where I could not do good, to you or to myself, but where I could do the greatest good privately to every one of you. Thither I went, and sought to persuade every man among you that he must look to himself and seek virtue and wisdom before he looks to his private interests, and look to the state before he looks to the interests of the state, and that this should be the order which he observes in all his actions. What shall be done to such a one? Doubtless some good thing, O man of Athens, 
if he has his reward, and the good should be a kind of suitable to him. What would be a reward suitable to a poor man who is your benefactor, who desires leisure that he may instruct you? There can be no more fitting reward than maintenance in the Pretanion, O man of Athens, a reward which he deserves far more than the citizen who has won the prizes at Olympia and the horse or chariot race, whether the chariots were drawn by two horses or by many. For I am in want, and he has enough, and he only gives you the appearance of happiness, and I give you the reality. And if I am to estimate the penalty justly, I say that maintenance in the Praetanian is the just return. Perhaps you may think that I am braving you in saying this, as in what I said before about the tears and prayers, but that is not the case. I speak rather because I am convinced that I never intentionally wronged anyone, although I cannot convince you of that. For we have had a short conversation only, but if there were a law at Athens, such as there are in other cities, that a capital cause should not be decided in one day, then I believe that I should have convinced you, but now the time is too short. I cannot in a moment refute great slanders, and as I am convinced that I never wronged another, I will assuredly not wrong myself. I will not say of myself that I deserve any evil or propose any penalty. Why should I? Because I am afraid of the penalty of death, which Miletus proposes, when I do not know whether death is a good or an evil, why should I propose a penalty which would certainly be an evil? Shall I say imprisonment? And why should I live in prison and be the slave of magistrates of the year, of the eleven? Or shall the penalty be a fine and imprisonment until the fine is paid? There is the same objection. I should have to lie in prison, for money I have none, and I cannot pay. And if I say exile, and this may possibly be the penalty which you will affix, I must indeed be blinded by the love of life, if I were to consider that when you, who are my citizens, cannot endure my discourses and words, and have found them so grievous and odious, that you would want to have done with them, others are likely to endure me. No, indeed, men of the fiends, that is not very likely." And what a life should I lead at my age, wandering from city to city, living in ever-changing exile, and always being driven out? For I am quite sure that into whatever place I go, as here, so also there, the young men will come to me, and if I drive them away, their elders will drive me out at their desire. And if I let them come, their fathers and friends will drive me out for their sakes. Someone will say, yes, Socrates, but... Cannot you hold your tongue, and then you may go into a foreign city, and no one will interfere with you? Now I have great difficulty in making you understand my answer to this. For if I tell you that this would be a disobedience to a divine command, and therefore that I cannot hold my tongue, you will not believe that I am serious. And if I say again that the greatest good of a man is daily to converse about virtue, and all that concerning, which you hear me examining myself and others, and that the life which is unexamined, is not worth living, that you are still less likely to believe. And yet what I say is true, although a thing of which it is hard for me to persuade you. Moreover, I am not accustomed to think that I deserve any punishment. Had I money, I might have proposed to give you what I had, and have been none the worse. But you see that I have none, and can only ask you to proportion the fine to many years. However, I think that I could afford a coin, and therefore I propose that penalty." Plato, Crito, Critobulus, and Apollodorus, my friends here, bid me say thirty coins, and they will be sure, sure ties, 
Well then, say 30 coins, let that be the penalty, for that they will be ample security to you.